Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello world, how are you? Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every week we pick a new book on Russia or Eurasia and talk to the author. This week, it's my pleasure to present an interview with Miriam Dobson on her book, Khrushchev's Cold Summer, Gulag Returnees, Crime, and the Fate of Reform After Stalin. Of the many topics in Russian history, the Gulag stands near the top of the list. Every student of Russia will at some point read the works of Solzhenitsyn, Ginzburg, and Shalamov for a thorough picture of the injustice and horror of the Soviet Gulag system. Less, however, is known about the fate of the Gulag after Stalin, and in particular, the social and cultural response to the release of over 4 million prisoners after his death in 1953. Thanks to Khrushchev's Cold Summer, we now have a good sense of this. There are a lot of things to like about this book. Its ability to capture the voice of Soviet citizens through letters and petitions, the moral panics around crime and Gulag subculture, and the attempts by Khrushchev to construct a post-Stalin political narrative. But what I particularly appreciate is how Khrushchev's Cold Summer emphasizes that Stalin's death did not produce a collective sigh of relief, but a great amount of social anxiety and confusion that was exemplified in how Soviet society made sense of the Gulag returnee and his legacies. So without further delay, here's my interview with Miriam. Enjoy. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thank you for taking the time to talk about your book, Khrushchev's Cold Summer, Gulag Returnees, Crime and the Fate of Reform After Stalin. Uh, Just to begin, tell us a bit about yourself and why you chose to study the history of Soviet Russia, and in particular, the post-war period. Well, I guess as a teenager, the thing that I found most exciting at school was always foreign languages, and I studied French and Spanish. And then when I was looking to apply to university, I felt I wanted to try something new. So I ended up taking Russian as a beginner. And I guess I'd always had an interest in Russian literature. I'd liked reading Anna Karenina and various other things um, as a teenager. And then when I got to university, I found that it was particularly Russian history uh, rather than really literature that excited me the most. And particularly in my final year, I had a really inspirational teacher, Chris Ward, uh, who taught us courses on uh, 19th and 20th century Soviet history. And I think it was really that that made me feel that I wanted to go on to, to postgraduate study at all, and particularly to Russian history. So after finishing my degree, my first degree, I, I went to London to the School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, where I took an MA in history. And again, had a really good teacher, um, Susan Morrissey, who taught a Soviet history course and from there, I, start, I started thinking that I wanted to go on and, and do a PhD in some area of Soviet history, but really kind of found lots of things that I was reading interesting and exciting and didn't have a very, for a while, I guess, kind of a very clear idea of exactly what I wanted to work on. And I guess I started to think about what areas were perhaps kind of open to, to, to new work. And it seemed to me that the Stalinist era... Uh, 
there'd been lots of really great work done in the in the 90s um and that perhaps the the post-war period and particularly the post-Stalin period were areas which hadn't really been touched upon so much there'd been work kind of by earlier generations on political science and on literature but really it seemed a little bit that the kind of 50s and 60s were still a very much an open field and that in some ways it would there'd be more freedom as a young scholar coming in to be able to choose a topic and work on it and I guess also I felt that there were lots of interesting questions that had been raised by the study of the 1930s about the nature of Soviet society, which would be interesting to explore in terms of what was Stalinist, what was Soviet, how did things change once um, Stalin um, died in 1953. So at that point I started looking around and kind of thinking about what topics would work um, for, for a, a PhD in uh, the, kind of the Khrushchev era, um, having particular interest, I guess, in the kind of social, cultural history um, approaches. And, and and why did you choose to work on gulag returnees? What what interests you in this? And, and and how did you come to write this book in particular? Well, I guess as a as I was um, doing my MA, I, at one point I read Grossman's um, Forever Flowing about the the uh, the experiences uh, uh, a fictional work, but about a, a gulag returnee um, and the problems of a kind of a family responding to his. Return and that started making me think that this was uh, potentially an interesting topic to work on. I guess as I was starting the project, I thought it was would be primarily about political returnees because that was what was mentioned in in the kind of the um, secondary works on, um, on the Khrushchev um, period. Generally, it was always um, thought of in terms of the secret speech, the admission of uh, Stalin's crimes against um, innocent victims of political repression. And then the, the fact that these kind of political prisoners came back. Um, and I guess it was really as I started doing research in the archives, I started thinking uh, about the Gulag return as being something slightly broader than that. And I was working through Molotov's personal uh, fond, and I was looking at letters that had been written to, to him in the 1950s. I guess I was particularly looking at... Um, at that stage, I was starting to look at responses to the secret speech in '56, but I also found letters which had been written by ordinary Soviet citizens in 1953, just after Stalin's death. And I found this one letter, which for me is one of those kind of, I guess, exciting moments when you find something in the um, the archives which just really changes the way you think about a particular topic. And it was a letter from a female tram driver in Moscow, and it's a very, very rich letter in which she expresses kind of her concern about uh, the Gulag attorneys, this first wave that had happened with the amnesty in 1953, um, and her really kind of graphic language about how she wants to have uh, the fingers of their hands chopped off so that everyone can see straight away that this is a villain. And, and the fact that, you know, the political leaders, they, should, they just need to come and talk to the tram drivers of Moscow, and then they'll understand the real problems that are hitting the country. And that just sort of opened my eyes, I guess, to two things. One was obviously the fact that the return is not just about political prisoners, but about a whole raft of other kinds of um, prisoners as well. And secondly, this this kind of anxiety and this fear that at least some citizens expressed in the 50s about the, the breakdown of law and order within society. And so that was a very different kind of way of people responding to the return and to the thaw period generally, which wasn't just about kind of relief um, that the terror was over, but also some kind of other perhaps um, less positive emotions as well.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, the, one of the things that, that's um, very interesting about your book is your source material, the fact that you use a lot of letters and petitions from regular citizens to the government. Um, talk a bit about these sources. In particular, what do they tell us about public opinion and identity in Soviet Russia? And then also, what kind of methodological challenges do the, did they pose for you? I, mean, I think they're an incredibly rich source, but they, were, they are also a problematic source in various ways. The kinds of sources that I found um, most useful and interesting were um, two different kinds of letters, I guess. One was petition letters, so when people write to the authorities uh, because they want something to happen, something concrete and good to happen to them in kind of um, area that I was working on, that was particularly uh, letters from people wanting either release from the um, camps or rehabilitation or the restoration of property that had been confiscated. So something concrete like that. Um, the other kind of letter that people wrote were, one, were letters where people had nothing material to gain from it, but they just wanted to express an opinion. And the way that I found that kind of particularly interesting, that that, that kind of engagement of ordinary citizens with the uh, political authorities, that they think... Um, that they've got something important to say. And the fact that they think somebody cares, that they think somebody um, in the Politburo is going to be reading their letters and might even change their policies and the, the direction the country's taking, if only they know what the ordinary um, citizen thinks. So I find that kind of interesting as a reflection on how p- at least some people thought about Soviet power. I mean, the real problem, of course, with these kind of letters is always the question that's raised is how typical are they? How, how representative are, are they of some kind of broader... Uh, popular opinion and that's obviously difficult because the very fact that somebody's written a letter perhaps makes them atypical you think even about contemporary society you know people who write letters to to newspapers are are perhaps unusual most citizens most people I guess might moan about something but can't actually be bothered to take that step of writing the letter so in a way that's you know they are perhaps um, people who are in some ways exceptional but I don't necessarily think that makes them unuseful to us as historians. So the way that I started thinking about letters to the authorities was that people in expressing their ideas, they have to, they they get their ideas, they get their language from somewhere. And what I was interested in looking at was where do their ideas and vocabularies mirror the kind of rhetoric that you find in the official Soviet press and where does it diverge? And if it diverges, does it diverge in very idiosyncratic ways, which are unique just to them? Or can we find certain patterns in the way that they're diverging? And if so, where, where do those patterns come from? Is there some kind of oral culture existing, which is obviously influenced by Soviet official rhetoric, but isn't necessarily a kind of a mirror image of it or a direct reflection of it? Through letters, you know, you, it, the question is how typical are they is always an issue. But in some ways, you know, when you see, a lot of letters tend to repeat the same types of narrative structures, the same types of issues, the same types of concerns. So that gives you a better sense that, you know, maybe they might rep- be representative of a wider opinion amongst uh, the public. Yeah, right. So if you start to see these kind of patterns emerging, then I think that you can start to say something tentative or maybe, but you can start to say something about what you think um, broader public opinion might be. And the other thing that I thought in, about these letters was that, okay, so they're problematic, but they're also that they're one of the key sources of information that the Soviet regime has as well. So just as we're reliant on the letters because they're the only written source that we have which tells us about popular opinion, so too, so too for the political leaders, for the um, 
the officials who are trying to make sense of, of um, Soviet society, if they want to know what people think on a certain issue, they too use those kind of letters. So however distorted a picture of popular opinion it might be in some ways, it's, it's also the distorted opinion, uh, distorted picture that the, the authorities have to deal with as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's something really worth taking into consideration, how these supply the, 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 the government what people are thinking, and this you know, makes them even more important for that fact. Um, let's move on to the substance of the book itself. Um, your book begins with Stalin's death on March 5th, 1953. Uh, what happens as a result? Well, I guess there's three kind of key events that happen in um, March um, in in 1953, after Stalin's death in, in March of that year. One of the first events is the amnesty, which happens about three weeks later. This is a decree which issues a release um, to prisoners who are serving less than five, five years, and it also reduces by half the sentences people um, are serving if it's over five years, um, with some exceptions. And as a result, almost 50% of the gulag population is uh, released over the course of uh, the next year or so. So it's a very rapid uh, uh, reduction in the size of the prison camp uh, population uh, and leads to this kind of very significant exodus of of prisoners um, from the camps. So that's one of the major events. The other two things um, that I guess I talk about um, in the book are also the uh, the release of the doctors who'd been arrested as part of the uh, doctor's plot of January 1953. This was kind of, is often seen as the height of post-war repressions and the, the anti-Semitic, um, I guess, a wave of anti-Semitism in which the, the Soviet government was engaged in the, the final years of Stalin's rule. And in April of 1953, again, very soon after Stalin's death, there's a public admission that the doctors weren't guilty and that they, they, they too are released. And then it, by the summer of 1953, Beria um, is also, head of the secret police, is also um, released, and uh, released, he's um, arrested. So what we see there is a, as a kind of a, a, a shift. Um, there's signs which I think are quite visible to, that something is changing in Soviet society that something about the Stalinist system is going to change quite rapidly. These changes, the amnesty, the release of the doctors, the arrest of Beria, it's all talked about in the Soviet press. And yet it's talked about in a way that doesn't necessarily help people make sense of it very well. These uh, stories are reported, but there isn't yet a really um, explicit explanation of why and how things are going to change. And I think that's what makes 1953 a problematic year for people because they must be aware that there is a change in direction after Stalin's death, but exactly the nature of that shift isn't um, clear, I think, um, either in 53 or 54 or 55. I think it's only once we get to 1956 and the secret speech that you even see the the, the political leaders trying to, to explain to people what's going on and the nature of the changes that were following Stalin's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting threads that goes through your work is that 
53 in Stalin's death and then these immediate changes creates a lot of confusion in Soviet society. People don't know the, the, the calculus of, of how to conduct oneself and what the rules are changes and, and people are kind of lost and are trying to make sense of all of this. Yeah, and I think that's that's true for um, the, the ordinary citizen who doesn't necessarily have a direct experience of the gulag him or herself. I think it's also true of people who were either prisoners or who'd been released and wanted rehabilitation. But again, that they're, they're aware that something's changing. Um, for some people, that will be a positive thing if they're, that they're people who are hoping um, for, for release or rehabilitation. For other people, as I've suggested already, you know, it might be not wholly positive um, experience. But I think for all people, it, it's, it's confusing um, trying to work out how to express their ideas now. Now, you know, if we're using kind of, if we use Stephen Kotkin's terms, the kind of ideas of speaking Bolshevik, um, I think people in writing petition letters, for example, would try and speak Bolshevik, but but it's not necessarily clear anymore exactly what that is. Um, and I think by the time we get to 1956 with the secret speech, that's an attempt to, to bring some clarity, but I'm not sure that clarity is is achieved even in, in 1956. I think the secret speech, in part because of its ambiguous status, this kind of document which lots of people know about but isn't published, and I think also because it's quite a, it's a long and quite confusing document itself. I, I think as a result of that, the, the confusion that I found in 1953 doesn't dissipate in 19, by 1956, and I think this is an ongoing feature of the 1950s, is that something is changing, but exactly what it is, um, and how people are now supposed to uh, articulate or express themselves it, it is not kind of resolved. And I think that's something that is ongoing through really kind of perhaps throughout the whole of the Khrushchev period, perhaps starts to change a little bit by the 1960s. Uh, one of the things you focus on, I mean, first you have this mass amnesty, but there's still people left in the gulag. Um, so what the amnesty actually opens up is the possibility for people to either petition for their release or for those who are released to petition for their rehabilitation for past crimes. Um, in what ways did gulag inmates or former gulag inmates represent themselves in these petitions and what kind of narrative forms did they use to, to use your words, craft the perfect petition? Well, I think there's different choices open to, to, to people and I think there is a difference here between how political prisoners would try and articulate uh, uh, their narrative um, and those of non-politicals, one way is to, for, for people to try and say, to admit that they'd made mistakes, say, okay, so perhaps um, I did go AWOL when I should have been serving in the army, perhaps I did steal something from the collective farm. But they can, in a sense, kind of employ, a, I guess, a kind of socialist realist narrative, which is to say, um, okay, I made a mistake when I was young, um, I was young and um, uneducated. Often people would talk about the, the poor upbringing they'd had. They'd talk about the fact that during the war they'd not had a, a good Soviet family. They'd perhaps not even had a, a, an education in a Soviet school, but it had ended up, for whatever reason, roaming across the Soviet Union as, as a, an orphan, um, as a um, one of these kind of biesprizorniki uh, um and so they were trying to say, well, all this happened, I made mistakes, but I have been um, corrected almost by the t- my time within the Gulag, and I can now be a good Soviet citizen. Um, I now want to come back into society, uh, come back onto the correct path in life. 
and I, I'm ready to do that. The the other possibility for people, um, and this I guess was particularly um, political prisoners, w- was rather different. They didn't, as people who um, were innocent of any uh, political crime, what they wanted to show was not that they'd made mistakes and had been corrected, but in fact that they'd been truthful all along, that they had in fact been honourable, loyal uh, party members throughout uh, their time in prison and in the camps. And in a way, what this, many of them wanted to show was, if anything, their experience of suffering and trauma had just made them stronger and better Bolsheviks. So it's a way of kind of reaffirming their party loyalty. And one of the things that I suggest in the book is that these narratives are quite powerful and they also themselves feed into the secret speech that Khrushchev makes in 1956, that this idea of the incredibly devoted, martyr-like party member who suffers in the camps and then comes back ready to serve the party anew in a way is a kind of motif um, that is quite useful for the party because it's, it, in a way it says that the terror and this admission of everything that's gone wrong doesn't necessarily have to be really damaging and um, difficult for the regime. Actually, it can be a source of renewal because in, by showing this, we can show that the party is, is honourable and can, can, in a sense, come back to life again now. Yeah, let's turn to the secret speech uh, a little bit more because, um, as you said, up to, up until 1956, there are very few guidelines as to you know to fix the confusion after Stalin's death and the ways the regime is changing. And and Khrushchev's speech tries to give some kind of sense, uh, in some way, a new narrative. And and I think you, your discussion of the how it tries to reconfigure people who uh, were who were sent to Gulag uh, were now kind of heroes, and it tested them and made them better Bolsheviks. Um, but how did Soviet citizens interpret the secret speech? Because as we know, it wasn't that secret. Um, and it, in particular, Khrushchev's attack on the concept of enemy the enemy of the people. And then second, did different did party members have different views than the general public on on what Khrushchev was was saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is. I mean, I'm not the first person to have said this. Um, quite a few scholars in recent years have started to to look at reactions to the secret speech. Um, and very much, of course, uh, w- what comes across is the fact that it's a very badly kept secret. Uh, the, the problematic nature of it is that it's not a secret, but the exact contents of the speech um, isn't widely distributed. It's read out to party members, um, but it's not published in the press. So lots of people will have some inkling of its content, but they won't know exactly. And so there's a lot of curiosity about that but there's also a lot of anger a lot of anger from people who are saying well why can't we know what's in it and I guess a kind of uh, uh, demands for greater honesty from the government and there's also a sense from some people again that the government needs to know more about what ordinary people think so kind of saying you need to open up some kind of system or institute of popular opinion so that you can actually find out properly what people think what the ordinary people are, are making of this and we have this new wave of letter writing um, of people feeling that they know something's happening, they want the government to know their reactions to it. The reactions to it, I, I guess, are, are really mixed. Um, in terms of the revelations about the terror itself, some people think that they don't need to have any new information. So some people, um, including uh, some, particularly some some party members, is to say, well, actually, at the end of the terror in 1938, as the terror was drawing to a close. There was an admission then by the the party leadership that um, errors had been made. So, yet we dealt with it then. We don't. We really don't need 
um, to come back to it now. But that, that's not necessarily a universal feeling. Other people uh, felt that they did want to talk about it. And some people buy into this idea that talking about the terror, uh, admitting the mistakes can be part of a, uh, some kind of revival of the party and of Bolshevism. And I think perhaps that's most common amongst uh, people who were more committed party members, perhaps people who are involved in the writers' union, the writers' circle, people who have um, perhaps had more direct experience of the terror, have known people who've been arrested. And they, in particular, might be people who want to see the rights of political victims restored as of the party. But as I said before, I think kind of the secret speech is in many ways quite um, a confusing speech because it also, as well as um, admitting to the arrest of people, innocent uh, victims of the terror, it also does other things. One of those, the other things that it does is it um, criticises Stalin. But again, in quite a subtle way, rather than saying, well, I guess in the past people... Um, political leaders once party leaders once they'd been rejected it would be that they were you know unmasked as an enemy what's the Khrushchev's trying to do is something really quite different in terms of speaking about Stalin and trying to give a much more um mixed picture saying Stalin was very uh good for the country in certain respects he was very bad in other ways and I think this kind of mixed message is difficult because people are saying well we want a clear message for example people are concerned about the portraits of Stalin that are ubiquitous in the Soviet Union. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to carry on having um, a portrait on the wall of Stalin or not? And so I think, I think that kind of unclear message from Khrushchev confuses people, and partly because people have to make a decision. You know, if you've got a portrait of Stalin in your office, you actually have to make a decision about whether to keep it there or not. Um, and you, you, there's obviously an anxiety. If you make the wrong decision, then you could be co- committing a political error yourself. And I think people find it um, difficult, this idea that um, political figures can, can be mixed. Um, and we, we see a kind of, re, I guess, a resurgence of the language of enemies quite often happening. Some people kind of suggesting that Khrushchev himself might be an enemy, because in a way this, this language, this rhetoric of enemies, I think, is quite embedded. And I think Khrushchev's criticism of it, he talks about kind of the, the concept of the enemy, of the people being something that Stalin invents, I don't think he can get rid of this kind of language quite so easily um, as, as he might have imagined. Yeah, the, the ambiguous uh, portrait of Stalin that he paints, I mean, you, you can see the, the, the vestiges of this in, in, in Russian society today. I mean, people still are kind of caught with how do we deal with Stalin? There are people who are just complete condemnation, and there are people who you know still kind of hail Stalin as a great hero and savior of the country. But the, the, even the Putin regime, the Putin government tries to walk a kind of thin line between not completely condemning but not completely advocating Stalin. So it's interesting that Khrushchev, the, the narrative that Khrushchev put forward in '56, I mean, really continues today in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the problems with that, as you say, yeah. Four million prisoners are released from the Gulag uh, between 1953 and 1958. Uh, Tell us about, first, the reaction to this mass wave of people who have been branded as enemies and as criminals. How how does society kind of deal with this? How do they accept it or, or... or view it, and then what? A, and talk about the difficulties of returning the returnees themselves and their efforts to reintegrate themselves back into Soviet society. I guess always the, the problem 
in talking about reactions, it comes back to the issue of sources that we were discussing a little bit earlier. A lot of the sources that I came across were letters from people who were extremely concerned about the return of prisoners. This isn't to say that everyone was concerned. Some people, I guess, you know, would obviously be, this would be a great moment, their loved one is finally returning. And I think those stories, you know, we shouldn't forget about those that some people came from the camps, did have a family to return to, and this was, you know, a really, really important moment in their lives. And lots of people had a sense of gratitude um, to Khrushchev for that. But that's not the, the kind of, I guess, the kind of universal story in terms of reactions. The letters that citizens wrote suggest that there was anxiety about gulag returnees, and I guess perhaps more than anxiety in a sense of anger that these people who they saw as being um, criminals could come back into Soviet society and potentially commit crime. So there's a real anxiety about criminal activity, I think, from, from, from the summer of 1953 onwards. There's a real sense of rumours um, within society that, that um, perhaps the problem of crime isn't really as big as people feared, but the, the, these rumours that criminals, um, murderers, rapists are marauding uh, both the city streets and um, Moscow's trams and the railways and so on, I, I think those fears are very real. And this is something that from from the summer of 53 onwards, the, the party leadership is very aware of. And they even talk in early 1954 about the need to have newspaper articles reassuring people that uh, criminals are being properly dealt. So um, in early 1954, there's this kind of commission of very high-ranking um, party members and uh, members of the Soviet government who are basically discussing the fact that they need a um, murderer sentenced to death headline and they're trying to work out how, how they, could, they can kind of um, manage that and how they can produce that. And it's, it's a realisation that and they talk about this openly even when there isn't necessarily a rise in crime in particular regions, there's a rise in that anxiety about crime. Um, and people talk about things that they can see around them. They talk about uh, groups of men gathering, playing cards, um, drinking, involved, getting into fights. And th these things are seen, and perhaps the, the rumours of them are, uh, are exaggerated, but th there is that kind of anxiety about what the, the gulag returnees bring with them. In terms of the experience of returnees, again, I, I mean, there are obviously lots of people who in a way never appear in the archives. They return from the camps and presumably find work and get on with an ordinary life. But the people who are, of course, as a concern and, and therefore kind of leave a um, historical record are those who don't manage to return and integrate um, as they might have wished into Soviet society. There's real problems with employment. The the Soviet and uh, the government in Moscow is kind of saying to employees, well, you, you need to um, take on uh, gulag returnees and, and, and find them work. But actually on the ground, factories, enterprises are often reluctant. So there are many stories of returnees who come back. They don't necessarily have a, a home to go back to. They're trying to, to lodge with kind of relatives or, or um, friends and find work, and then that's difficult. And so what you find is that some, some um, returnees end up living a quite transient lifestyle. Some people kind of, um, people talk about uh, the rise of um, 
uh, vagrants are on at stations and on railways, people who haven't been able to kind of reintegrate well back into society. Um, and there's one story that I found in the archives which just really struck me, which was the, the case of a man who, who'd come back from the camps and he was living with a sister who wasn't really that happy to have him staying there. And he was trying to find work and he couldn't find work. And then he, his sister kept on, got more and more angry with him. And in the end, as a kind of act of desperation, he ended up um, going and writing uh, an anti-Soviet pamphlet or kind of leaflet and sticking it to the wall of the local KGB office. Um, his, his intention, it seems to be clear from the, the court case, which followed was simply to get sent back to uh, the Gulag because they, he didn't know um, how to make a life for himself um, in, in Soviet society. And I'm sure that kind of story is absolutely atypical, but I think it is representative of, of some of the problems which uh, former prisoners encountered. One of the things that you talk about that people, people in society are concerned with with gulag returnees is gu- the effects and influence of gulag subculture. Um, talk a little bit about what exactly is gulag subculture. I think... Um, the kind of ways that gulag subculture kind of might manifest itself, are, for example, in the form of tattoos on prisoners' bodies, songs um, that they might sing, language, particular slang words, um, which are kind of unique to, to, the, to the camps and to the, to the prison subculture. Now, of course, this isn't to say that everyone who's been inside one of the, the prison camps is, in fact, is, is affected by this. But I think there, there is a sense that there, there, um, some returnees bring with them elements of this, um, this subculture when they come back into Soviet society. So again, um, some of the, the, the cases that I look at in the book involve people who were arrested, re-arrested in the 1950s. What I found particularly interesting was cases of, of men, and they were particularly men, not exclusively, who came back um, having served a sentence for a non-political crime. So they're people who had been in camps for theft or hooliganism or something like that. And they come back and they find themselves re-arrested um, in the mid to late 1950s, but this time as a political prisoner. And one of the things that... Um, they're accused of in several of these cases is the fact that they've brought back with them songs um, or ideas that they're then kind of disseminating in society. So there's one case of a, a, a youngish man who comes back, uh, I think he's only about 20, and he starts teaching his um, friend, uh, his friend who works at the same factory as him, songs that he'd learned in the camps. And what we find is both of the two men, really young men, end up with um, prison sentences for engaging in kind of anti-Soviet political activity. You focus on the ways the state and society dealt with this uh, crime wave. Um, and, and one of the ways is is the state began to appeal to society or to this concept of uh, a chespinost in, in policing society. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the ways citizens participated in, in fighting crime? So I guess one of the kind of general ideas in the 19... 19- um, 50s and uh, under Khrushchev was the idea that Soviet society was progressing to the next stage of the revolution. So it was moving towards the communist future. And as we know, in the communist future, there's no longer going to be need for a, a state. In the, the state's eventually going to, to wither away and society will 
fulfil what were once the functions of the state for themselves. So in lots of different ways, we see the, um, the Khrushchev era government trying to in- engage members of Soviet society uh, in various uh, tasks which had once been uh, fulfilled by um, the state and its, um, its own structures. And one of these is, in a sense, in dealing with uh, offenders. There are various different ways that people can get involved in fighting uh, against crime and trying to kind of maintain law and order in society. So one way, one thing that people can do if they that they want to is to, to join brigades, um, voluntary brigades, which patrol uh, city and village streets and try and prevent crime happening. The other kind of activity they might be involved in is comrades' courts. So comrades' courts um, are, are normally based at a workplace, um, though they can also be a housing block as well. And so the idea is when we're talking about crimes which are, I guess, relatively minor, that people can be tried by their peers rather than in a, a state court. Um, and I guess the, the, the notion is that somehow the shame of being uh, judged by your uh, members of society is, is going to be um, much more effective in making people really reflect on their behaviour um, and make them want to change. What I found interesting about this was kind of also a shift that I think happens over the course of the 1950s, is that throughout the 1950s there's very strong, after Stalin's death, really um, a strong emphasis on these kind of collective policing ideas. A lot of these ideas aren't in themselves new. That They've been there in earlier kind of incarnations, um, in the, particularly in the earlier um, Stalinist period in the, in the 1920s. Um, but but they've perhaps kind of got fallen into our abeyance and, um, and they've you know, really revived in the 1950s. A lot of talk about them in the press and the importance of them. But there's also this shift that we see over the course of the 1950s, which is um, certainly by 1959, right at the end of the, the decade, we see a real stress on the idea that crime can disappear from society. And again, I think this is to do with the ideas of the communist future being near. There no longer kind of brigades just about arresting people who, who've um, already committed offences, but that they can in a way kind of prevent the crime happening itself by being constantly engaged um, in this kind of moral re-education with people, of people. So in a way, it's all about trying to prevent criminality happening at all, um, I guess it's also about um, trying to reduce the, 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 the prison camp population. So particularly, again, at, by the end of the 1950s, uh, there are moves to say that people who have committed sentences, um, committed offences, but not, not, not particularly serious ones, shouldn't be sent to, to the gulag, but instead should be kind of corrected within, within society um, and that they should be kind of handed over to an organisation, normally their workplace, for... Um, for their kind of guardianship, so that the kind of the workplace normally would become a guardian of this person, and it would be their responsibility to kind of be co- closely monitoring that person and prevent them kind of sliding back into a criminal lifestyle. So I guess um, keeping an eye that they are behaving themselves, that they're not drinking, that they're co- coming to work, and all those sorts of things. So there's this idea that um, criminality can be, you know, as soon will be a thing of the past and it's the, the collective responsibility to try and make that happen but, but yet again 
the year 1961 uh, is yet another turning point in your story. Um, on the one hand, Stalin's body is removed from the mausoleum. He's publicly denounced in the press. His victims are exonerated. But on the other hand, Khrushchev returns to a rhetoric reminiscent almost of the 1930s in speaking about socially dangerous elements in society and calls for, a, for I, I quote, a battle against idlers and parasites, hooligans and drunkards. And he states that there is no place for these weeds in our life. Um, how do you explain this contradiction between denouncing repression on the one hand, but seemingly calling for its revival or renewal on another? Well, this is a moment that I found really, really interesting because uh, I think I mentioned earlier in the interview about this kind of sense of confusion that I think has been really prevalent throughout the 1950s, this sense that the Khrushchev and the party leadership are saying that there, Stalin did bad things, that there was um, uh, you know, the, the repression of innocent people, in, in the, um, particularly in the 1930s, but also in the post-war period, um, and that we must kind of you know, build a better future thing. thing. Um, but, but, but it's all quite unclear, I think, in the 1950s, exactly what's meant by that, exactly how they should think about Stalin, exactly who's responsible uh, for the terror. Um, and all of the conversations that are happening about that are, are kind of cloaked in some way that, 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 as we've said before, the secret speech doesn't get publicly disseminated. And so what we, you know, 1961 seems a moment... Um, and it's often seen as being the kind of like the high point of the Khrushchev era, um, where he, the, the materials from the 22nd Party Congress are made public, in, um, and now it, a very clear message is sent out uh, that Stalin's responsible for the terror, but also that um, he was supported in that by the people who are now kind of uh, identified as members of the anti-party group, so Molotov, Kaganovich, and so on, and Malenkov. Um, and so it's kind of seen, you know, a clearer narrative in a way that kind of Stalin's the, the main guy responsible, but also that he was helped in this by kind of um, his closest colleagues. And so you start to see a kind of some kind of attempt at clearer narrative emerging. And obviously, there's still problems with that narrative, even about the purges, and there will be challenges to it. And we see that particularly in the literature of the um, the early and mid 1960s. But I, I saw that as being kind of like a really clear attempt to resolve at least some of the uncertainties of the 50s. But as you say, at the same time, there is a shift and the gulag population starts to climb again. And I guess what I, I, I think Khrushchev is trying, to, is trying to do there, in a way it's all about this idea of um, reviving the eschatological kind of nature of the communist project and really saying, you know, we are moving to the future rejecting the errors of the past is all part of this kind of forward motion um, and this kind of acceleration towards uh, the communist future. But if we're going to have that, if we're going to be able to build the communist society, then there can be no place in that for idlers and weeds. Um, and so you kind of get this rhetoric of kind of, you know, kind of uh, parasite, get out of Moscow, get out of Leningrad. So trying to kind of um, Purify, and I guess that's the way I would think about the, the, the commonality between these two seemingly contradictory ideas is is in the kind of concept of purification. That Khrushchev saying we can purify ourselves by getting rid of the and admitting to the errors of the past, but we can also purify ourselves by getting rid of those blemishes in society which are still um, preventing us uh, moving forward uh, towards communism. That's interesting concept of purification. That's that's quite a novel idea. Um, now, how did society? I mean, you talked about how you have 
elements in society participating in trying to keep law and order. How did they react for this call for uh, tougher measures against uh, criminal elements? Well, I think, I mean, I think, I think very much it's something that's, that some people within society ha- have been calling for, for for several years. So I think in, in some ways we would expect um, kind of this to be well-received and I think that, that that's the case, um, and you see that in kind of responses to the Twenty Second Party Congress, in particular to to the um, the Moral Code, which is kind of adopted at that point, which also talks about kind of intolerance towards uh, parasites and and so on. But I think there are also people who, who find this problematic um, as well. I mean, one group of people who find this problematic are, of course, um, prisoners themselves. And uh, what I find really um, interesting is that some some prisoners. Um, are actually very articulate, including kind of non-political prisoners. Um, they're very articulate about the fact that they they, they understand and they see this shift in um, rhetoric and priorities that has happened, and they're um, very unhappy about it because they understand uh, the, the the path and the promise of salvation and re-education, all these things that have been promised um, promised to them in the course of the 1950s, is now being denied and taken away. Um, and I think there are also people um, who example in the final chapter of the book I look at the um, case of Josef Brodsky and the, the, who, who is also denounced as being um, a parasite himself and some people start to understand that the pledge that the post-Stalinist leadership had made to the concept of legality and this had also been a kind of key theme running through the 1950s as well that the Stalin era had been a, seen an abuse of legality as um, and from 53, again, 56, kind of this idea that, that, that the Communist Party is now committed to obeying its own laws and being uh, legal um, in, in its actions, uh, that there is concern for, from some people, particularly other intellectuals and writers, that the campaign against bad behaviour, as it's seen, against parasites, actually is in itself a... a, a, a uh, kind of betrayal of, of the, the concept of legality, which had once seemed so important to the post-Stalin regime. You do end your book with this discussion of reactions to the publication of uh, Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich in 1962 and the trial of the poet, as you mentioned, Yusuf Borodsky in 1964. Um, talk a little bit more about the importance of these, these two cases and how people responded to them and and also, in particular, the tone that they sent, they set for the final years of the Khrushchev period. I guess thinking that back now to, to kind of process of, uh, of doing the research for the book, um, you know, I started off uh, early on in this interview talking about a letter that had really kind of struck me early on in um, the process of doing the research of the letter of the tram, tram driver. The other kind of research which I actually did very, very early on, was the, the work on responses to Solzhenitsyn's um, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And again, um, found very exciting and stimulating as a process, I guess because I found something that at that point I wasn't looking for. Um, and what I found in many of the letters to uh, to the editors of Novi Mir, uh, the journal where Solzhenitsyn's um, novella was first published, was that people were very concerned about the language that Solzhenitsyn was using, 
they were concerned about the fact that he was using bad language, uh, camp slang, and they saw this as being uh, antithetical to the to the norms of, uh, of Soviet literature. And I guess this kind of brings us back to uh, the, your question earlier about um, subculture and the way people were hostile to the introduction of elements of this gulag subculture into the canon of Soviet literature. And and for me, again, it's, when I was doing this research, it was very much it wasn't something that I was looking for at that stage, but it just really struck me was that what I had expected in starting to look at letters to, to Solzhenitsyn was that people would be talking about terror and they would be talking about the nature of the, the, the prison camps. And of course there is that there too, and I'm not saying there isn't at all, but I was also really struck by the fact that it also became a discussion about respectability, about um, the moral norms of both Soviet society and Soviet literature. Um, and for me, that was a real kind of eye-opener again in terms of thinking about the fact that the Gulag return was was not just about political prisoners and it wasn't just about... Um, the political repressions and uh, Stalin's kind of role in all of this, but it was also about this kind of these social relationships between so- Soviet society and uh, the Gulag as, as a kind of zone which had emerged with its own identity and for many people uh, a kind of an identity of which, of which they were very fearful. Well, it is a great book, and I do recommend that everybody go out and read it. Um, just to kind of wrap up the interview. Uh, the final question we, we I ask everyone was so what are you working on now? Well, I've just started uh, on a on a new project, but it's fairly early days yet. But I'm interested in looking at evangelical Christianity in the post-war period. So, looking at at the moment, I think a fairly long period from '45 until the end of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, and looking particularly at Baptists and uh, Pentecostalists in Soviet society. It's quite different from what I've worked on before, but I guess it brings in certain elements which are shared in terms of thinking about people's beliefs and how they uh, respond to, to, to various changes in, in late Soviet society. Um, I'm hoping to, to do some oral history interviews at the moment. I've just started working working in the archives and been looking at some fascinating cases um, from the 50s and 60s, looking at Anti-propaganda, um, anti-religious propaganda, which was uh, accused um, believers of uh, the ritual killing of children. And then what I've been try- managing to do is to kind of find some of the court cases uh, behind those stories and trying to look at both um, the, kind of the real story of the believer who kind of gets caught up in this web of accusations and the, the, the newspaper coverage itself. Oh, it sounds fascinating. I, I really look forward to this because religious belief is something that we that has yet to really been delved into when it comes to the Soviet period. A lot of work has been done on anti-religious stuff, but on what people actually believed and how they worshipped um, is is uh, open field. So it's really great. So, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the interview. It's wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for um, interviewing me. We've been speaking with Professor Miriam Dobson about her book, Khrushchev's Cold Summer, Gulag Returnees, Crime, and the Fate of Reform After Stalin. I hope you enjoy the interview. 
Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian-Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next week when New Books in Russian-Eurasian Studies talks to Thomas Duvall about his book, The Caucasus and Introduction. Until then, goodbye. Того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо блампочку повесить. Денег все не соберем, 